Hi, this is Elliot Lurie, a singer and songwriter, and the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Thank you for joining us once again on On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak. This is the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week, our guest is Elliot Lurie. He was the lead singer of Looking Glass. Now, if you remember that group from the 70s, they had hits, and uh, one of the big ones that is, has been used in movies and TV shows over the years, time and time again, was Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. Remember that one? And also Jimmy Loves Marianne and a whole bunch of other things. Elliot's going to be joining us here in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. We're going to be talking about that song and a whole lot of other stuff. He has done a lot of uh, uh, music supervising for movies and things like that. So he's going to give us a lot of good information. And we'll be talking, of course, about Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, and all sorts of other stuff right here on On Screen and Beyond. So get ready for that. And let's get right into it. It's time for Remake Madness. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, a remake of 1992's White Men Can't Jump, is in the works from Blackish's Kenya Barris. And the original starred Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes, of course. And a remake reboot of Ocean's 8, all-female film starring Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett. Well, now they're saying that there will be appearances by Kim and Kendall Kardashian. That just dropped it a couple levels, I think, but that's just my opinion. Anyways, that's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen to Be On, it's upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies, Tom Hiddleston and Eddie Redmayne will lend their voices to an animated film called Early Man. It's an animated comedy adventure. And also, Game of Thrones, Maisie Williams will be joining the cast also. Anna Kendricks is in talks with Disney to play a female Santa in an upcoming holiday movie, and we'll keep you updated on that. And John Goodman will star in 2018 in Captive States about a Chicago neighborhood after 10 years of being occupied by an extraterrestrial force. That's it for upcoming new movies. Next on On Screen to Be On, we're going to take you down to Sequel City and let you know what's coming your way as far as sequels. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sequel City, it looks like Woody Harrelson has joined the cast of Star Wars Han Solo movie. That's an interesting one. And Goosebumps 2 now has a release date of January 26, 2018. And November 16, 2018 will be the date theaters will get Fantastic Beasts 2. 
That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD, some good ones coming your way. March 7th, Star Trek Voyager, the complete series, will hit stores on DVD. And on February 14th, Star Trek Enterprise, the complete series, will be flying into stores on Blu-ray. And Twin Peaks, the definitive gold box edition, lands on DVD on March 14th. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, let's take a peek at what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD. Movies on DVD, the remake of Ben-Hur that was just out with Jack Houston will land on Blu-ray and DVD on February 21st. Manchester by the Sea with Kyle Chandler will be making its way to Blu-ray and DVD on February 21st also. And on February 28th, it's going to be bringing Doctor Strange with Benedict Cumberbatch to Blu-ray and DVD. That's it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and entertainment time. Well, it looks like Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda will be presenting Lily Tomlin with a Lifetime Achievement Award at this year's SAG Awards on January 29th. And, of course, the three of them were in 9 to 5. Good movie. Check that one out if you've never seen it. And let's see, another sad note. It just keeps each week. It seems like something's coming our way, and it looks like Dick Godier. Uh, known for the role of uh, Jaime, the robot, and Get Smart, and uh, many other roles, of course, in movies and TV. He passed away at the age of 85 this week. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. We baked you a birthday cake. If you get a tummy ache, and you moan and groan and woe, don't forget we told you so. Happy birthday! Celebrity birthdays, it looks like, on January 21st, Billy Ocean. He's going to be turning 67. And January 22nd, it looks like uh, Diane Lane turns 52. January 23rd, Richard Dean Anderson, MacGyver himself, turns 67. And on January 24th, Neil Diamond turns 76. And on January 26th, Ellen DeGeneres turns 59. That's it for celebrity birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, we didn't have any coming in this week. We had some come in, but they weren't for this date, of course. But uh, if you, a friend, or a relative are going to be having a birthday coming up, send me the information at feedback at onscreenbeyond.com, and we will wish you a very happy birthday on your birthday or a friend or a relative, whatever, like I said, and uh, just send that information to me. And that's it for listener and celebrity birthdays. Next on On Screen and Beyond, we're going to be talking to... Elliot Laurie, he was the lead singer for Looking Glass, who had the smash hit, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, and uh, that was back in 1972, rose to the top of the charts, and uh, he was also the music director for several movies, many, many movies actually, and TV shows uh, throughout the years, and uh, we're going to talk with him, Elliot Laurie, he's next, right here on On Screen and Beyond.
Today's guest on On Screen and Beyond has produced music for many soundtracks in films, including Perfect with John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis. He was also the music supervisor for Aliens 3, Night at the Roxbury, I Spy, Charlie's Angels, Stuart Little, and so many others. But we will always remember him as the songwriter and lead singer of Looking Glass and their hit song, Brandy Your Fine Girl. It's Elliot Lurie. Elliot, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Thank you, Brian. Now, Elliot, here we are. How many years? I, I, I didn't even count it up, but it's, I mean, <laughs> it's been quite a few years since you had that hit. But, boy, what a hit. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's, been, it's been about 45 years, I guess. came out in 72. Um, was the number one uh, record on Billboard then. Sold a million copies back when people bought those little records with the big holes in the middle. <laughs> um, but it also seems to endure. It still gets, uh, still gets played, and uh, people uh, uh, who were not born when the uh, record was out seem to when those words and sing along when I do it live. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's one of those songs. There's some songs that you hear them and you say, oh yeah, that's you know. That's from the fifties, or that's from the sixties, or that's that's from the, the the disco era, or whatever. But then there's other songs that just keep going, and they don't seem to have that that aging to them. Yeah, I I I, I wonder about that sometimes. I think um, I think some of it has to do with the uh, the production of the record. Um, we kind of produced that record in uh, in hunt and peck fashion. We did, we we recorded it a bunch of times. We recorded it with uh, a producer in, in Memphis, Steve Cropper. Uh, the results didn't really come out the way we wanted them to. We re-recorded it again uh, with a staff producer in New York. Uh, then we finished the record from there. So it was kind of a, a hunt and peck system and. The production on it uh, is uh, a little different than some of the other records from the period. It's, uh, it's got the horn section, the background vocals, and it's kind of poppy and all. Uh, but it still sounds like what we basically were, which was a bar band. Uh, just, uh, you know, caught, caught uh, in three minutes of, uh, of good time. <laughs> <laughs> no. We'll talk more about that song in a minute, but let's let's go back to when you were a young child. Were, were you musically inclined when you know you were six, seven, eight, nine years old, or, or how, uh, how did you a, develop? I was a huge fan. Uh, neither of my parents were uh, were were musical, and I didn't play an instrument at a really young age. But I was a huge fan. One of the things I asked for for like my tenth or eleventh birthday was one of those old Wallensack reel-to-reel tape recorders. And I used to hook it up with alligator clips to the back of the radio and, and you know, tape the, the songs off the radio as they were being played so I could have a, a massive uh, massive song collection. So I was a real big fan. And uh, then started taking guitar lessons at about 12 or 13, stuck with it ever since, and... You know, then when the the Beatles came along, that changed everything. It was like, wow, you can uh, get a couple other guys, write your own songs, play some music, and, and you make something happen with it. So uh, that's that was kind of my uh, my chronology and uh, the way I got into music. So you weren't uh, musically trained or anything when you started writing songs. You just 
just did it naturally? Well, I was trained in that the guitar lessons that I took, they, you know, they were not just, uh, you know, the, 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 the gentleman who I took the lessons from was, was quite accomplished. And, you know, there was theory and I could read and, you know, so I wasn't uh, just, just a play-by-ear kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never studied serious, you know, studied seriously or studied songwriting. Or... Yeah. Yeah, well, because I, you know, you hear different things. And, like, I heard one time that uh, even Paul McCartney... Uh, couldn't read music for a long, long time. Is it? Do you ever hear that? Uh, I don't. I never heard that about McCartney, and I, and I, 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 I kind of have a feeling that 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 uh, from working with George Martin and, and those orchestras, he probably he probably learned to read pretty quickly after that. If he if he couldn't beforehand, yeah. uh, but you know, having having that, listen, there's there's some folks who who never took a lesson in their lives and. and you know, crazy good players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I found it's helped me uh, to, to know a little bit of theory and uh, and the song structure, chords, harmonies, things like that. I mm-hmm. find it helped. Yeah. Now, when you were, like you said, growing up and you were you were getting to, to form a band, were, were you one of the founders of the group or did they bring you into the group or how did that come about? Uh, early on, Boy, I, th- I think the I think the the first gig I ever played was probably when I was about fifteen, and a local sax player hired me to be in a trio, and we played a bar where we were supposed to get the piece of the door, and I think we got two dollars and fifty cents that <laughs> night uh, each. Um, but you were first, probably thrilled, right? <laughs> uh, I think I, I was I was thrilled to play a gig and. How they let me in that bar at fifteen, I don't know. But, right, <laughs> uh, they, but they did. Um, but uh, during my high school days, we had a we had a band that played, uh, you know, local dances and things like that. We would rehearse in the the finished basement of the uh, drummer's house. His father was a doctor, and they had a home with the finished basement. We'd set up the gear there, and uh, that band actually. We actually auditioned at Capitol Records and did a couple of uh, of uh, acetates of uh, a couple of cover songs and a couple of things that we had written, and uh, we didn't get signed. But uh, his first experience in the recording studio was pretty cool. Wow! Yeah. So, Looking Glass. How did you get into that one? Uh, Looking Glass was a band that got together at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Uh, I went. Uh, there, as did two of the other three members. The fourth member, the, the uh, drummer, we went to a nearby uh, college. And the band went through a couple of different personnel changes and incarnations, uh, but we became a very popular group for the bar and fraternity band circuit around central New Jersey at that time. We uh, we worked quite regularly, and we, you know, we would do four or five, six sets a night Mostly cover songs. Mm-hmm. Like, give uh, us an example. We, what, what were some of those cover songs you were playing back then? Uh, we would do. Uh, uh, it's been so long, but we would, we would do like, uh, <laughs> like Buffalo, Buffalo Springfield, okay. Rolling Stones, Young Rascals. Uh, you know, all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. We, we would do, uh, you know, lots of cover stuff. And as we became more popular, as we began to write more. We were able to start to sneak some original stuff into the sets, and people would be accepting of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we got a pretty good local following to the point where 
uh, you know, the folks who, who followed us regularly, uh, you know, they, they liked the original material and, uh, and would ask for it. And we developed it by, by playing it live, uh, you know, every weekend. Hmm. And now you were writing a lot of the music. And, of course, is there a story behind uh, Brandy? You're a fine girl. Is that, uh, you know, I mean, I've had Tommy James on the show and he told us how Moni Moni came about and how they got the name and all those things and Crimson Clover and all those things. Is there any special story behind Brandy? Well, I I could tell you the the, the story about it, but I I think part of the interesting part about how it was written is where and when. So, you know, Looking Glass was, as I say, you know, four college kids. And, uh, you know, we were from middle-class backgrounds, and going to college was a big deal for our families. Uh, you know. So we all graduated, and uh, we said, uh, you know, we're doing pretty well at this music thing. We'd like to give it a shot, you know, and our parents were collectively appalled that we would, you know, try to do something <laughs> like that. So we, we rented a, uh, an old farmhouse out in the northwestern corner of New Jersey called uh, Huntington County. Very beautiful area near the Pennsylvania border. It looks more like the Pennsylvania woods than it looks like most of New Jersey. And we all lived in this farmhouse. We, you know, paid the rent by continuing to work gigs on the weekends. And we set all our gear up in this big living room downstairs in the fireplace, and we would rehearse there and write there and make demos there every day. And on the weekends, we'd pack the stuff up into the van and go play to pay the rent. And we said, we'll give ourselves one year to see if we can make anything of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was there that I wrote Branding. I had an upstairs bedroom, and there was an upright piano down in the living room. And when I wrote it, I wrote the verses on the guitar, and I came up with the chorus on the keyboard. And I couldn't really play the chorus properly on the guitar, and vice versa. I couldn't play the, 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 the verse properly on the piano. So I'd be running up and down the stairs as I was writing the song, going first upstairs and running down to play the chorus on the piano, running back upstairs to do the verse until I finally worked it all out. Um, in terms of the song itself, uh, I write words and music, so and usually I'll just strum the guitar and find some chord changes that I like and pre-associate a melody and some lyrics over it. And that's what I did with Brandy, but I was singing Randy with an R because I had had a high school girlfriend named Randy. Mm -hmm. And then as the rest of the story started to come together, I said, well, she's a barmaid. If I change Randy to Brandy, that'll work much better. And Randy is kind of an unusual name anyway, because it could be a guy's name or a girl's name. Right, yeah. Um, so that's where Brandy, the title, came from. The story, frankly, is uh, was was made up. And sometimes people ask me, oh, were you in the Navy? Were you in the Merchant Marine? <laughs> and the closest I ever got was to stand down. Sorry. So, uh, the story itself is, uh, is made up, but the, the name comes from... Uh, Randy from high school. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because you changed the name from Randy to Brandy, and I read where Barry Manilow changed his song from Brandy to Mandy 
because you guys had a hit with Brandy, so the song that was originally done by Scott English was Brandy, now changed to Mandy. So, so you all you guys. Were, yeah. It was it was all in the family because uh, uh, Clive Davis uh, signed us and also signed Diamantalo. So oh, okay. he was very he was very aware of it, and when he was working with Diamantalo and and found the song, uh, which. Uh, had been recorded by Scott English and had been a hit, I guess, in Europe mm-hmm, yeah. before we had recorded our brand. So Scott English's record never did anything here in the States, so right. we didn't have a problem with that. But obviously, after our song became number one, Claude sat down with Barry and said, well, we can't do this. We just had a hit record in Brandy, so let's change it to something else. <laughs> yeah, so it worked out great for everybody. <laughs> It could have been Candy Sandy, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, now, with that song, did I mean, did that just throw you into the public eye at that point? It did right, it did right away, because, um, yeah, it became a real big hit, and, uh, you know, we got, we got put on some tours. We had interesting tours back then, because we had only had the one hit, so... If we were to headline a place, you know, it would be like a four or five hundred seat club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the same tour, we would be opening for a really big act. Uh, and, you know, we'd play seven, eight thousand seat auditoriums opening for them. Um, so it, it was it was an interesting situation, but sometimes the pairings weren't the greatest. Um I know we, for instance, we opened a few times for uh, for Steely Dan, which worked out fine because music was not that that, that different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then they had us opening for Alice Cooper a few times. But his act was to you know have his head sliced <laughs> off the guillotine on stage. Yes. So we come out there singing this pop song, you know, and people are yelling, "Get off the stage, Alice!" Alice. So it was it was uh, it was interesting. Yeah, that that must have been really interesting. Jeez, yeah, I mean, yeah, because yeah, like you say, that's a. I mean, Alice did have some some top forty hits, but most of his crowd probably was not there for, you know, they, know. they, were, they weren't there for Brandy or Fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so was touring rough back then? It was a rough. Well, it was certainly different than it was. I tell you, I mean, you know, air travel was a lot easier than it is than it is now. It was kind of, you know, comfortable and and and, and easy. Um, you know, it, it it was it was fun. I wouldn't say it was difficult. We we didn't go on any really, uh, you know, extended uh, things that became difficult. And we were young. And it was new to us. So we had a great time for it. Yeah. Hmm. Now, of course, when you put out a hit. How does your mind have to work then? Because I'm sure the record companies are pressuring you to, you know, you've had one hit. Let's make give us another hit right off the bat. Uh, and and of course, Jimmy loves Marianne. That's a great song too. Uh, it, it didn't reach number one, but it's still a great song. Uh, is was there a lot of pressure to to perform? You know, with a, another hit. Well, I don't think the uh, the pressure was external. I mean, you know, obviously we wanted to. Uh, uh, to be able to follow up, um, you know, the, the first album that we did was very sort of uh, haphazard and, and uh, uh, not all that consistent. We released a couple of other things from that album, 
nothing really happened with that at all. Um, my second album, we got to uh, work with uh, Reef Martin, one of the great record producers of all time. Um, and he uh, did a wonderful production job. I, I, if, you, if you listen to Jimmy Loves Marianne on a, on a good stereo system, uh, the production is still still sounds fantastic today, to me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we had uh, the opportunity to work with him. And Jimmy Loves Marianne was, I guess, what they would call a turntable hit. Um, it got a lot of airplay. In a couple of cities, it was top 10. And in other cities, it, uh, you know, just kind of cracked the top 40. So, um, you know, it's a record I still am happy with. I still like to listen to it. I still do it when I play live. Um, but you just never know with that stuff, you know. Yeah. So are you traveling a lot still, uh, performing in different places? I wouldn't say a lot. I do it from time to time in different kind of situations. Um, sometimes I go out on... Uh, Concerts that are kind of like reviews, um, and uh, there's a you know a, a house band, and I'm one of a number of guest performers who come out and do their hits. And then I also do some things just as a singer songwriter, where I just go out with my guitar and do small places and try out some new songs that I've written and see how they work and uh, do that. But you know, I'm not uh, I'm not on the road a lot. I just right. do it from time to time. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned that, uh, you know, working with uh, house bands or, you know, just walking into a place and you're there with a bunch of other acts and you're going to sing, but you got a group that's not, you know, your band that you're used to playing with, is, does that worry you sometimes, you know, because you don't know, you know, how do these people play? You know? it, it, it does, but uh, uh, first of all, there's uh, one group that I play with pretty consistently uh, called the Yacht Rock Review out of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, have you ever heard the term Yacht Rock used? No, no, I haven't. I had not ever heard that term either. Uh, these guys approached me, and apparently there's a subgenre of music that's referred to as Yacht Rock. And Yacht Rock, as, as far as I can tell, is a certain kind of pop, uh, almost blue-eyed soul kind of slickly produced music from the 70s and 80s. People like Michael McDonald and Hall and & Oates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, that's, that's, and apparently Brandy is one of the defining songs of Yacht Rock. I don't know if that's because of the sound of my voice, the sound of the record, or because it's about a boat. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's one of them. So I uh, work with them quite often, and they invite other people of the genre to join them um, and uh, work with them fairly regularly, so I I know what they're about. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other ones, when you say, yeah, I do worry, and we prepare. Uh, I send, obviously, the records and chord charts to the band. Uh, I talk with the musical directors over the phone. Uh, make sure everything is straight. And I'm usually pretty comfortable by the time we get there. Sometimes the local, we even get to rehearse a couple of times before we do it. Or sometimes you get there the night before and you get to rehearse at Soundcheck. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I try to make sure it's all comfortable. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, these are your babies. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you want to make sure that it comes. Yeah, not only that, but you don't want to be hanging out there on the stage, you know, playing and, and, uh, and have people playing the wrong chords behind you. Right. So, yeah. Uh, but so far, I haven't had any, any problems. Everything's, uh, everything's worked out pretty well. 
Yeah. Now, do the crowds still, you know, react very well when you start playing those songs? I mean, just the beginning, the opening of the song, you know, does it bring a lot of smiles to the faces? It really does. And again, one of the things that, that, that really surprises me, and especially with the Yacht Rock guys, because they have a, uh, their audience is younger. Um, they wear, you know, they wear Yacht Rock caps, and frankly, they're usually pretty drunk <laughs> and, and having a real good time. And they sing along. They know every word to all of these, uh, uh, all of the songs that all the artists do. It's, uh, it's amazing to me that, you know, these kids in their 30s, uh, know all the stuff that was recorded before they were born. Oh yeah, jeez, yeah, yeah. But you know, they get drunk. Uh, Lawrence Welk will go, will give them a smile. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it is one of those songs that uh, it just it makes you feel good. And I, I was looking at some YouTube's of you do, performing, you know, in the past, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and. When you started singing, I, I was watching your face, and, and this smile came onto your face in one of the ones that I was watching. And it's like, you know, I could picture through your eyes by that smile that you were getting a nice reaction from these people out there. Uh, I assume you're talking about one of the more recent ones, and not the yeah. ones from back in the seventies. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, when yeah, it was. I think it might have been 2015. Even I, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I I enjoy playing out. I mean, I now have the uh, the time and the luxury to be able to uh, uh, to do that, and uh, it's you know it's the most direct connection when you're up there and in front of people playing uh, songs. Now, you know, I'm I'm lucky because I only have to do you know two or three songs in that situation, and uh, uh, but you know you can tell whether people are enjoying it, and, and uh, you can feel that energy. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And now you went into uh, producing music for uh, movies and and supervising it. Uh, uh, that must be fun. But but give us an idea, and and most of the listeners too, I'm sure, aren't sure. What does a musical supervisor do? Uh, I I didn't know either before I, <laughs> I became one. Um, I had moved out from the East Coast to Los Angeles, and I really was not sure what I was going to be doing. I knew, you know, I wasn't going to be recording anymore. It's been a number of years since uh, anything of uh, import had happened. I had been signed, Clyde signed me to Arister Records after I left uh, Epic. I had done a solo album for Epic. Nothing happened with that. I made some size for Clive at Arista. Nothing happened with that. So I said, okay, so now i got to figure out what I'm going to do but a grown-up life. And uh, I really was kind of, you know, looking around. I was going to, uh, you know, take a take a job working at Radio Shack selling, selling electronics for a while so I could figure it out. A friend of mine introduced me uh, to an agent, and the agent said to me, um, well, he said, would you be interested in composing music for movies or television? I said, well, I'm not really... You know, trained to do that. I'm not going to be competing with uh, with John John Williams and, and people like that. I'm a songwriter. I'm a pop guy. He said, "Well, he said, you know, have you ever thought about being a music supervisor with your experience in the record business?" And I said to him, "What is that?" And he said to me, "Well, it's kind of a new uh, occupation, and there are only a few people in town who are doing it successfully." as yet, but it, it looks like it's something that the studios are interested in. 
and he mentioned a couple of names of the people who were successful. And he mentioned this lady's name. He said she's done um, Urban Cowboy, and she did Footloose. And I knew the name. A mm-hmm. uh, lady whose name was Becky Stargo. And at the time, uh, she was a music supervisor. But prior to that, she had been in the A&R department at Epic Records West Coast. And she had been my A&R coordinator for the solo album I did for Epic. So I called her up, and she said, yeah, I said, I've got all this uh, work, uh, you know, people at own work. I mean, now that I've had these two big successes, I could use some help. I said, well, Becky, you know, I don't know anything about this business. She said, well, I can't really pay anything. I said, well, that's okay. I said, I'll come to work for you for next to nothing if I can learn how to do this from you. She said, good. She had an office in the back of the old uh, uh, recording studio that used to be on 3rd Street in Los Angeles, um, record plant. And we had two desks that were pushed up right against each other, and the old phones would, you know, they'd light up, they'd ring, and you'd hit the button. And I just sat across from her for a year and worked with her on projects and learned how to do it. Now, how to do it? What is it? <laughs> Basically, it is helping the filmmakers and the studio um, put together the music for their movies or TV series. And that can be anything from uh, exposing a director to a number of different composers and having him choose one that he likes and then helping negotiate that deal to putting together a full-blown soundtrack and soundtrack album and music video. And when I was starting this career in the early 80s, mid-80s, that was very important because if you recall back then, MTV used to play music videos yeah, used that to. were basically <laughs> basically trailers for the film mm-hmm. intercut with a hip-hop song. And the, the movie studios loved it because it was free advertising to their most important audience. Mm-hmm. So they loved it, and they started hiring music supervisors and transitioning um, uh, their music departments basically focused on that, on having hit soundtrack albums, which helped sell movie tickets. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's one of those titles that, you know, okay, music supervisor. All right. <laughs> you know, it's, we don't know what they do, but <laughs> it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, basically they, they help the filmmakers um, put the music in their movies. And that can, like I say, can vary from from doing a little, if it's just a movie with a score and song or two, uh, to doing a lot, if it's uh, you know, an off-the-screen musical with on-camera performances that have to be pre-recorded and played back, and uh, you know, so it, it can really it can really run the uh, run the gamut. But yeah. basically, you're helping the filmmakers with the music for their movies. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Elliot, I have two final questions to ask you. Okay. And this is going to take us away from your your music and your writing and everything else that you've done and your hit song and everything. But uh, when you sit back and relax, what do you watch on TV now? What are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what are your favorite movies now and of the past? Mm, okay, let me let me give that a little thought. Um, well. Like everyone else, we love Game of Thrones. We watch that all the time when it's on, and we miss it when it's mm-hmm. off. Um, we do like to watch in bits and pieces um, The Voice, 
as we have uh, dinner in front of the TV sometimes. We're not up to date, so I don't know who's won just yet, but mm-hmm. we're following the seasons of voice uh, very carefully. Um, I like to watch a lot of sports on TV, and usually my wife uh, goes in the other room when I'm doing that, <laughs> but I like to watch a lot of sports on TV. Uh, that's kind of what I'm up to these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any movies? Favorite movies? Any movies? Well, um, current, current? Yeah, current and, and of the past. Uh, just saw La La Land the other night. Oh, how we was enjoyed that? that? We enjoyed that very much. Enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I'm a little behind on the on the uh, on the other uh, current things. I find I don't go out to the movies too much. Right? Uh, I'm uh, I go to a lot of screenings this time of year because I'm a member of the. Um, the Academy that has to vote on the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I try to at least, uh, at least see enough of them so I can make an educated vote. Um, so we go to a lot of uh, a lot of screenings, but they, they haven't really started in earnest yet, and we got a lot of videos to uh, to catch up on. Um, as far as older stuff, I mean, you know, anytime any of the Godfather movies, or at least the first two are on, I can't turn them off. So I'll mm-hmm. watch those anytime. Okay. Um, it's kind of Kind of, kind of, I guess. Okay. And one other thing I wanted to ask you, who who was your inspirations as far as music? Well, I, in a way, I think it was lucky. When when I grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn, New York, obviously there was no satellite radio, there was no Pandora. In fact, when I was really starting to get into music, there was no SM. So there was Top 40 AM radio. Right. <laughs> but the cool thing about Top 40 AM radio was they would play it. If it were a hit, they didn't care what kind of music it was. So you could listen to WMCA in New York for half an hour, and you could hear uh, Johnny Cash next to Marvin Gaye, followed by the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. uh, followed by Sonny and Cher, followed by Brenda Lee. Yep. You know, so you'd get uh, a wide, uh, wide scope of, of styles. Um, if I had a point to some folks who I think really influenced me, uh, certainly the Rascals influenced Looking Glass as a as a live band. We had a Hammond organ, and uh, they they were a big influence. Um, Curtis Mayfield was a big influence on me. His guitar playing style, his grooves, uh, his approach to lyric. Um, you know, whether it was. With the impressions, or even before that, there's a song that I do live now that he wrote um, and recorded with Jerry Butler called uh, "He Will Break Your Heart." Um, I always thought he was a real great writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the guitar playing side, you know, the, again, it's a little bit of the R&B stuff. I mean, I, you know, obviously when when clapping him along with those kinds of and Hendrix and those kind of virtuosos, um, I listened to them. I tried to do that. But I'm more of a rhythm player, and I would listen to, like, uh, Bobby Womack records. Oh, yeah. And, okay. uh, and some of the session players who were on those great records that came out of, uh, uh, came out of uh, you know, Muscle Shoals and, mm-hmm. uh, and and the New York studios back then. Uh, that was a big influence on me. Yeah. Well, Elliot, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us. It's, it's been fascinating to hear you tell your stories. And uh, I, when I saw the opportunity to uh, to get in contact with you, I, I said I had to do this, and I appreciate it so much that you took the time to share with us. 
Uh, it's good talking to you. You, uh, yeah, you asked some questions that brought me back, so it was a little tough to get a handle on some of them. But uh, it's uh, it's always fun to talk about uh, talk about the old days and uh, also to catch up to what's going on now. A big thank you going out to Elliot Laurie for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. Brandy, you're a fine girl. Great song. Just one of those songs that, you know, just goes on and on and doesn't sound dated or anything like that. It's just a good song. And uh, also, uh, Jimmy Loves Mary Ann. And there's just so many things that he did. And uh, the movies and everything. So, I want to thank him for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. Hope you enjoyed that one. If you have a suggestion for a... Uh, guest here at On Screen and Beyond, send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. We'll see what we can do about getting that person on and uh, have my feelers out getting all sorts of connections, trying to get uh, people to come on here. Some can, some can't, uh, but uh, we're doing what we can. And uh, like I said, go ahead and uh, make a suggestion if you have it. Help me out. All right, let's see. That's about it. If you are on Facebook, be sure to like us and uh, what have I been doing this past week? I've been writing songs for Bonji Bear and the Kingdom of Rhythm, and we're still working on that, and uh, we're getting closer and closer. They're doing the animation right now, and uh, I'm still writing the songs and things like that. So uh, we'll keep you informed on what's coming your way as far as that and when it'll be coming out, and I uh, hope you'll enjoy that. But uh, that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when do we once again take you on screen and beyond? I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. Thank you.